You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grape nuts. Okay? I like grape nuts for breakfast. Can we move on? Senator, I'm only asking these questions because... I know. You are asking because everybody else is asking. I understand that. That's why you need to know what I eat for breakfast. Grape nuts. Can we move on? Any interview, especially an interview in 1988, is a bit of a negotiation. Candidates by this time are well handled. Reporters just just walk up and talk to them, and if they do, they're not going to get the answer to just any question. But for E.J. Dion of the New York Times, this would be the one, and in fact it would be remembered well as the profile interview of Gary Hart. It feels to many, sir, that when questions turn to yourself, you don't want to answer. That's what makes us in the press maybe want to ask them more. My birthday, how I got along with my school chums, my relationship with my mother. Is it wrong for voters, Senator? Is it wrong that we ask these questions? Do you think that they ask Reagan about what he did when he was 13? Does anybody realize that Russia is changing, E.J.? Of course we do. We are going to talk policy, Senator. I just wanted to ask a few questions. Don't you want to ask me about Iceland? We have an historic opportunity. Absolutely, sir. Candidates are invited into the living rooms of millions of people. Don't you think the people deserve... Stop saying people, E.J., when you mean the press. I understand. You are not asking. You are asking because they are asking. I get that. I am not being terse. But it feels like you don't want to answer, though. Grape nuts. Okay? I want you to imagine the possibility, E.J. The possibility that I'm not weird. Jack Germain and Jules Whitcover said in their campaign memoir, These Broad Stripes, about 1988, that they bemoaned the loss of all the private time that they had between reporters and candidates. Now walls went up. Like he didn't just talk to Hart the way that in 1968 they could have talked with Robert F. Kennedy while they were playing poker with him. But there's two sides to that coin. It's not just the reporters chomping at the bit to get something out of the candidates that might be different from the other newspapers and television stations. Candidates, too, knew that they needed to get the candidates in a profile article and preferably the best, fairest one that they could get. 
A nice profile piece in a major magazine or newspaper could fly over the heads of the Rathers and the Sam Donaldsons on TV and make their candidates relatable. It wasn't just Hart who threw walls up. George Bush, he put up walls too. Didn't like talking biography, same way as Hart. Don't put me on a couch, he would tell reporters. They tried to ask about what he was thinking. Don't, Don't put me, on, put a me couch. on a couch. You wanted to talk to Bush? You had to go through Marlon Fitzwater, who handled press. And then you're probably going to have to go through George W. Bush, campaign aide throughout this campaign for his father, the embodiment of the wall. Everything you said to Bush or Fitzwater was going to get back to the candidate, and you were going to be judged. To build a relationship to get a profile interview, that's a time. And Gary Hart's campaign picked Dion because he was enormously fair, progressive-minded. He wasn't a wolf like the rest of the pack. But the profile, as difficult as it was, would be remembered for one reason. When E.J. Dion asked, with a thousand apologies, and after a long discussion of missile reduction, plutonium control, and free trade expansion, when E.J. asked about the rumors of womanizing that were surrounding Gary Hart, Gary Hart gave a lot of smokescreen answers and eventually said, If they're so worried, put a tail on me. You will find I'm boring. In 1988, the clarion call for my generation is not, it is our turn. Our party has a problem with sensitivity. We're perceived as not caring about people. Everything has to have a quarterback, something to call the signals and throw the ball. Or... Standing up to pressure is something the next president is going to have to do. Poor, black, Hispanic, white, disabled. I was kind of shoved back into a little room, lights, these felt-covered things, goosing me from the back, <laughs> pushing me in the front. Some people say my trade policies are too tough on the Japanese, Germans, and Koreans. Say, now what are you going to say? You're saying the party and hurt. Now what are you going to say? Two cabinet officers indicted. Part of it is just a uh, very commendable kind of uh, skepticism. Self-aggrandizement has become the full-throated cry of this society. I don't know why you did a 180-degree reversal on that issue. But the fact is, you did. Clear materials, plutonium and weapons-grade materials. I'm in a business background. Stay with his convictions. I assure you, we would fire them, not give them a raise. Blocking for you unless somebody's downfield to catch your passes, but... I don't think you're ready to give up on yourselves. I've got mine, so why don't you go get yours? Big time. The 80s, so much larger than life, as the Peter Gabriel song said. Big time. A virtue type time. Bright, big, enhanced shoulders for women. Spender pants for men. Denim jackets, but perfectly crafted denim jackets. Power is expressed through your personal computer. The IBM PC2 with three and a half inch discs. And the OS2 operating system. The ad says, how are you going to do it? PC to it. The Sinclair 288, the first computer weighing under two pounds. Anything is possible now in the 80s. 
The USSR is changing. There are disposable contact lenses. The first AIDS drug, AZT. England and France beginning to discuss a channel between them. DNA used for the first time in a criminal investigation. Belgium bans smoking. And the U.S. Supreme Court says Rotary Clubs must admit women. Movies, The Last Emperor, Moonstruck, Dirty Dancing, Wall Street, telling us greed is good. While on TV, 30-something, all lowercase, looks at this new generation that so many people are fascinated with because they're so different and they could possibly turn an election. The baby boomers and how they're so self-absorbed, so analytical of themselves. They're reaching adult life. What do they like? How will they react? That's what friends are for. Dionne Warwick on the radio. Knowing you can always count on me. A world treaty cuts CFCs in the environment by 50%. Everybody pats themselves on the back. Richard Branson cruises the Atlantic in a hot air balloon. James Baldwin and Andy Warhol die. Pete Buttigieg is five years old. Life is big. It's pink and white and turquoise blue. The presidency has become big again. It's not tiny little Nixon Watergate Jimmy Carter presidency. It's big again. A candidate has to be able to fill the chair. Of a comfortable home with working parents, people with jobs, a life chance of moving out of a pest and dump infested set of rooms into a decent home built by a Labour Council under a Labour government. The life chance of an education that went on for as long as I wanted to take it. The United Kingdom is not immune to these changes, and a leader is emerging there, across the pond, with the potential to upend politics there. Me and millions of others of my generation got all their chances from this movement. Neil Kinnock, who is the Welsh-born leader of the UK Labour Party, heads up a party that took a beating in the last election. But he's popular. People like him. They like his wife. He seems relatable. And when he makes speeches, he can speak to working people in language that they understand. We want to honour our undertakings in full. In every sphere, every area of policy. We want to say what we mean and mean what we say. He's up in the polls, and nobody expected it. Conservative Party, led by Margaret Thatcher, expected to win the election easily. Party decides they'll feature him, Neil Kinnock. Now, that isn't strange in America, where we feature individual personalities of candidates, but... It's new in the UK. They're going to have something different, what they call a presidential election. After all, straight up in polls, Neil Kinnock is more popular than Margaret Thatcher. An American-style campaign. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations 
to be able to get to university. And there's this great speech where Kinnock has, where he talks about his generation and his Welsh ancestors, and how come he was the first one to go to college. Was it just because he's so great? What about his wife? Was it just because she's so smart? Was his ancestors stupid people? Her ancestors stupid people? Did they not work hard? How could that be? They were in the mines all day. Maybe, Kinnock's point is, it's because we instituted some policies that are better for people. A friend of Joe Biden, who works at the American Enterprise Institute, writes down what Kinnock's saying. He thinks this is going, this is exactly what his friend Biden is looking for. A way to explain democratic policies to average people that doesn't make it sound like things are a handout. Senator has to see this. I think we have to shift our tactic and our doctrine away from forward defense, which is a Maginot Line mentality, to um, maneuver warfare. And I think we have to increase the number of our reserve divisions. This will sound biased or whatever, but listen to this. Uh, that does not necessarily mean an increase of expenditure or manpower. It may mean restructuring our, our military forces on the land as well as the continental forces of other nations in the smaller divisions. And I think you, what you have is a comfortable front runner. He's got at this point something like 62% of, of Democrats in Iowa. And having more changing what is often called the teeth to tail ratio, increasing the number of combat units, combat forces, and reducing the number of support forces. It's early. It's 1987. Anything can happen, as we'll find out. But uh, when you listen to it, how comfortable he is with policy, how he can diagnose what's wrong with the Reagan administration without just kind of casting insults and names of the Reagan policy on one of its strongest points, which is the military buildup that occurred during the 80s. This is no surprise, thinking that uh, he could walk right in. Now, the networks have already announced major cutbacks in the election unit. Yeah, like who? You? Dukakis or Tanner? Who's the best bet to beat Bush? Let's talk about cable TV, because 1988 is the first election where it really starts to matter. Cable is developed as a way to deal with broadcast in areas where the signal's too distant, too mountainous, too rural to get a signal. It ends in 1976 when the FCC deregulates it. Now, there are innovations and experiments, a home box office, HBO, a music video station, you know that one, an all-news network, you know that one as well. There's these new kind of innovations all the time. By the time you get to 1988, there are 50 million Americans watching cable with dozens of networks available to them, instead of just those three networks. And because of all these choices, you need to have content. What am I going to do? Tanner 88, now twice monthly on HBO, Monday. The pressure on ratings is not very high, because ratings are small on all of these channels, so they can take some chances. And that's what Tanner 88 does. The most exciting power couple since Lydia and Bob Dole. Yeah. It's a weird show in that Tanner is a fictional candidate running for president in 1988 during a real election year, and real candidates, such as 
Bruce Babbitt and Bob Dole are featured on Tanner 88. They film in New Hampshire while it's going on. Gary Hart makes an appearance. So does Pat Robertson. Tanner is a fictional candidate who has very low prospects. Like, talk about lower than Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt's chance. He's going to lose. His staff doesn't know what to do until candidate Tanner just starts talking in a late-night staff meeting. Last night we were sitting around with um, Kirk O'Donnell and Hart and Biden, a couple of the other candidates. We were shooting the breeze about how much the party had changed since the 60s. And the staff is like, this speech is better than anything that we could have scripted. One of the quick-thinking staff turns the record button on on the camcorder. Suddenly, out of the blue, Lexi turned to Hart, and she asked him, who is his favorite Beatle? First Hart laughed. He stumbled around, trying to remember her name. Then she repeated her question for Biden, and Biden said, well, he, he'd never been a Beatles fan. He was into jazz. And Dukakis answered Paul because he liked his wife or something. Now, I don't know if Lexi knows the names of the Beatles herself, let alone the answer to her own question. But it suddenly dawned on me that I sure as hell did. And I knew for sure that anybody who didn't had absolutely no claim to generational leadership. Now, I must have, what, 10 years on Joe Biden? But damn it. He wasn't paying attention back then, and I was. And one of the things I figured out very early on was a singer mattered as much as the song. The ideas were only valuable as the people who got behind it. Tanner is giving this authentic speech about how things ought to be and how candidates should be real. That ideas were only as valuable as the people who got behind them. And it's all being filmed. People unafraid of honest inquiry. I'm not smart enough to know all the answers. But I do know we've got to keep asking the questions. Because throughout our history, we have always maintained that we could do better. We've insisted that we could do better. And then at the last moment, he says, the right answer is John Lennon. They run this reality cinema as an ad on the fictional TV show. The right answer is John Lennon. And it does wonders for Tanner. He starts getting all of these fundraising calls. Oh, yeah, you had to take calls those days to, to get the money. It shows the yearning in 1988, though, for somebody to say something that wasn't handled, that wasn't scripted. It's a great show. Um, I guess you can find it on YouTube. Cynthia Nixon is the candidate's daughter. This is a very special occasion. Which is kind of cool. The offices of the Miami Herald face the twinkling water, the boats. Its logo is the backdrop for scenes in Miami Vice, the TV show. Come on, Scott. Who do you think you're dealing with here? guy who's about to lose a hundred grand worth of speedboat. Black hell. 
You see it there behind Sonny Crockett and his white suit and pink shirts and his boat and his pet alligator Elvis. And the Miami Herald was a pretty good paper, but not the stuff of presidential races. Until the phone rings. And when a reporter answers the phone, he's highly skeptical of this person on the other end. I mean, it's so much that he's almost mad at her. Because this woman is saying her friend is having an affair with Senator Gary Hart. How can you say that, the reporter says. This is a serious allegation. You don't just say something like that wildly without proof. Well, he's lying. And I'm concerned. I mean, look at what happened with Iran-Contra. I'm concerned the next president could be a liar. The reporter feels that it sounds contrived, scripted. Real people in Miami don't talk like this. Someone put her up to this. She's probably reading from a piece of paper. Do you have proof, ma'am? I can tell you, my friend is meeting Senator Hart today. You can go there yourself. Where? In Washington, D.C. She's flying up today. The reporter couldn't get over this nagging feeling that everything was being set up. What was this woman's motive? But journalism takes over. It's a lead. Let's check it out. He gets a description of the woman from the tipster on the phone. He gets his editor's consent and then gets on a plane. Just barely makes it. He has only the phone tipster's description of the woman, but he figures it out um, to his amazement. The curly hair, former model, gets into a cab and then goes to a condo. That condo is owned by Gary Hart. And his wife, Lee, is known to currently be in Colorado. The Miami Herald doesn't have a huge organization. They have a reporter in D.C. The reporter who flew up grabs him, and they do a two-person stakeout. It's a poor stakeout. It, it will be revealed later, does not meet the standards of journalism. If they would have called WAPO... They might have got it done better, but they would have had to share the story, right? Big gaps in time, inconsistent, didn't always have a view of all the doors on Gary Hart's condo. Hart definitely is seen leaving the building with this woman, who is not his wife, shortly after 9 p.m. He's seen returning with her shortly after 11 p.m. And then he is seen leaving with her the next evening. They cannot say for sure if she might have left during the night or something like that. But nonetheless, when they see Senator Hart emerge later, they ask him, who was the woman? I'm not going to answer that question. That is between me and her, a private conversation. It is a friend. Nonetheless, the stakeout and his denial is enough for a headline. The cavalcade of stars shouldn't matter, but it did. It's one of these things in Iowa that shouldn't matter, but everything matters. It's a non-binding straw poll. There's no delegates behind it. It was held in Ames, Iowa, ridiculously unscientific. It measured how many supporters each of the Republican candidates could bring to the cavalcade. It drew attention for the Republican Party of Iowa, and it made money for them. Years later, they would get rid of it. The National Party was sick of it. But in 1988... It was big. The first time anyone would see the word winner next to anyone's name running. And so in this cattle show of candidates, where they'd speak, shake hands, talk, stand in the spotlight, talk about America, it mattered. George Bush, as assistant to the leader of the free world, 
living in the Naval Observatory in D.C. May have wanted to avoid an event like this so early on, but he couldn't do so. As the alleged frontrunner, he had to go. Team Bush, GPB, as they were called, George Bush for president, went to work, setting up buses for supporters, getting those tickets done. Eight years before, he had surprised Reagan with a grassroots campaign by getting more of his people out. If they could just get 2,000 Bush-friendly Iowans to this event to vote for Bush, they'd have it. They probably only needed 1,000. But to be safe, 2,000. I did not uh, emerge or uh, burst on the scene, I guess, until after the New Hampshire primary in February. And then, as you know, it was a, a real roller coaster. When Gary Hart announces his campaign formally, it's on a windswept rock formation in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, Red Rocks Park. It is called the Garden of Titans. Here's how the Times describes it. Mr. Hart, wearing a blue suit and cowboy boots, arrived in a jeep and took his place at a slab of sandstone. I make this race because I love my country. It was a big moment. But after the Herald story breaks... He's having to make different types of statements. Before we go any further, I want to sort of stop myself and ask you if there is anything that you yourself wish to volunteer to the American people on this occasion about the various womanizing charges that have been leveled against you this, this past Only year. those that I've responded to fairly repeatedly in the past, including on national television. Mm -hmm. I have um, said that I was very sorry for the mistake that I made. The entire press corps was focused on the Herald story, the mysterious woman in the condo. I made some mistakes. Believe me, if my intent was to have a relationship with a woman, particularly a very attractive one, I certainly wouldn't have gone about it this way. Gary Hart, the Democratic presidential candidate who has dismissed allegations of womanizing, spent Friday night and most of Saturday in his Capitol Hill townhouse, with a young woman who flew to Miami to meet him. Hart denied any impropriety. He tries some lines at various press conferences that will occur in the next few days. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the theological definition of what constitutes adultery. He's holding up. He sees if it will blow over, letting his confused New Hampshire campaign staff handle a barrage of questions as to whether he will continue or not when he doesn't show up to a campaign event in that state. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Miami Herald has a series of stories about this, as do other papers. Democratic presidential candidate carried on a private relationship with a young Miami woman for at least two months that included long-distance phone calls and a visit to his townhouse, according to the Herald Investigation and Hart's own admissions. I've said that uh, there's no way that anyone can respond to rumors and gossip, particularly in public life. Uh, I have confessed my errors and sins, if you will, in a way that I don't think any national leader has done in a long time. Now, it should be said that what's going to be come, uh, the, this, the sensation of the 1988 election, is something that the media did a lot of self-questioning about. It felt like a tabloid-type story, something that would be in the National Enquirer. Indeed, in a few weeks, pictures are going to appear with this woman, Donna Rice, model, actress, appeared as an extra on Miami Vice one time, uh, sitting on the lap of Senator Hart. Is the news media joining the National Enquirer by running this story? Here's time. Some media experts thought the Herald stakeout was too forward for a mainstream news outlet. Time and other news outlets said Hart was asking for comeuppance because of his earlier challenge to put a tail on me. That made it, according to Time's logic and the logic of a lot of media organizations, a question about his judgment and a question about his truthfulness. Time also argued journalism had evolved. So did societal changes. Sure, public office holders like John F. Kennedy or LBJ having affairs, you didn't report on that culture of the time. But with the breakdown of sexual taboos in the 1960s, discussion of such topics is more acceptable in general life. So it is in media. At the same time, with the changing status of women, society has grown less tolerant of the macho dalliances of married men. Now, I should say Time magazine trends conservative. The New York Times is also reflective. It's, after all, a person we're going to elect to be president, not a set of policies. Once in office, the policies may change, but the person's intellect, judgment, and character, it will not. Mr. Hart's judgment was in doubt. This new episode deepens those doubts. Here's uh, Rick Kaplan, producer of ABC's Nightline. It's three stories, not just one. One story, potential damage to the lead runner in the campaign. Second story is the propriety of the press. In pursuing this kind of story, the type of reflection we're talking about right now. And third is whether the agency that chose to do it proceeded to print it too quickly. That is, whether they're right. But the media is being its own judge and jury in a lot of the Hart scandal discussion. On ABC, Sam Donaldson said of Mr. Hart, If in fact he was dumb enough to go ahead with conduct that if discovered would be inimical to his campaign... He should be disqualified for stupidity. They got high tech. We got grassroots. They got commercials. We got a message. 
got a rich campaign and looking for a leader. We got a leader. We can make it. We got leadership. We got courage. We got direction. We have stood there at the path gate. We the people can win. We the people can win. Kill ratio. That was what it was about for Jesse Jackson and his campaign. Jesse Jackson could get more votes per dollar than anybody in this race because of the free press that he generated at times because of his name recognition. Kill ratio. He wasn't always going to have money, but his mix of old loyalists and newfangled campaign managers realized maybe it didn't matter. Jesse could get... Um, the other thing, candidates, generally speaking, weren't laying a punch on them. He has this great moment in 1984 where Hart and Mondale were bickering with each other and he tapped his hand on the table to get them to stop. He had a kind of moral command. Attacking him could backfire. Same for him. He couldn't be the reverend and then go and attack everybody else. But if he doesn't, how does he get media attention? Jackson talked about this after the 88 race. I said free Mandela referring to the South African leader, Free Mandela. That was called liberal at the time, but it was in the moral center of politics. No one else was saying Free Mandela. America was then allied with South Africa's apartheid government. We forced them to change. We also talked about drugs in the high school. It wasn't seen as a relevant issue in 88, but it was important to us because it was important to the 18-year-olds who we were registering to vote. There's drugs in my high school. That was part of our work during the campaign, registering 18-year-olds. Another issue, the Palestinians in the Middle East, talking rather than not talking with them, seen as radical, liberal at the time, greatly attacked for it. But it was in the center of politics, and it would become U.S. policy later, calling for a two-state solution, an anathema, in 1988. Another issue Jackson spoke of, comprehensive health care, so-called liberal, but we took these kind of positions that are normal, and the press called them liberal. Everyone's excited about Jesse. A lot of people are excited about Jesse. Jesse's going to increase his vote share by four times in Iowa in this campaign that he got in 1984. He's going to get the backing of Ernst Hollings, a white senator from South Carolina, and Bernie Sanders, white congressman from Vermont, could not get people from two different sides of the political spectrum than that. Jackson had them. He tries to use the fact that he takes on what could be considered radical causes as a strength. Hey, call me what you will, but I'm not a pushover. Jerry Austin, the campaign manager, wanted to find all of the opportunities to get that kill ratio, bang for buck, vote per dollar. An aide tells him at one point about, you know, Alaska is having a caucus, and it's kind of like, you know, in a room somewhere. No one's paying attention to it. Alaska? I don't think, I don't think Jesse's been up there. No, no. What the hell? Send a box of uh, Jesse Jackson 88 pins. Okay. We are all going to have to seriously question the system for selecting our national national leaders. leaders. That reduces the press of this nation to hunters. hunters. 
and presidential candidates to hunt it. hunt it. For Gary Hart, the kill ratio is exactly the opposite. The more that he's been speaking and not addressing the question directly, the more that he's losing out. So Hart has a press conference in Colorado. He goes out and makes a speech to reporter. Now, people are talking that it looks like it's even announced on the news that Senator Hart's going to abandon his campaign for president. But it gets a little complicated. I intended, quite frankly, to come down here this morning and read a short, carefully worded political statement saying I was withdrawing from the race and then quietly disappear from the stage. What is this setup? Does that mean that Gary Hart's not withdrawing? And a lot of people think this. Is he going to keep running? And then I woke up about four or five this morning, and I said to myself, myself, hell no. Hell no. And there's just cheers from the audience. You think that he's going to be defiant here, continue his campaign. But I'm not a beaten man. I'm an angry and defiant man. Supporters are really getting their hopes up here, but as it turns out, it's not that Gary Hart won't withdraw. He'd just like to bash the press a little as he does it. This moment will be of this Gary Hart scandal will be stewed over for critics from time to come. Did we lose a potential great candidate or even great president because of a tabloid media story that people just temporarily got infatuated with? People have been questioning this since 1988. You know, there's just... A flurry, a new book, and a flurry about this a few years ago. The Columbia Journalism Review will find that these reporters would often struggle and contradict themselves in an effort to make sense of the rules they had constructed. The truth was that all this business about judgment and character was a rationalization and not a very persuasive one. You might think Hart had been caught bludgeoning a beautiful woman to death rather than taking her to dinner. Now, others, particularly those involved in the story of the Miami Herald, to this day maintain that they were right. This seriously questioned the candidate's judgment and also his truthfulness, saying you're going to find me boring and put a tail on me, and then doing this out in the open. Those two sides still remain. Oddly enough, of all people, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, says, you know, I was rooting for Hart. Reporters had no business covering, covering his, private, his life. private life. But Bush only says it to his diary. There's other reactions, but the candidates are quiet on this, letting the media do the work. Dukakis thinks it's abhorrent that a candidate would do this. He'll say later to students as a professor, one of the things you give up when you become a candidate is any kind of exciting life. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton looks at these events and abandons his plan to jump into the race. He's gone over his various dalliances with a aide, Betsy Wright, decides this wouldn't be the time, but it should be over in four years. So what's going to go on with the Democratic race now that the person that had 60% poll support in Iowa has left the race? You might think, the right here campaigns are like, yes, yes, this is opportunity. Um, and it could be opportunity. Dukakis in particular, Mike Dukakis in particular, thinks it's a positive. He's liberal. He's free trade. Hart's people will be Dukakis people. 
But it's not exactly the way that his campaign or many of the other campaigns wanted it. They wanted to beat Hart, not win by default. Some of the other campaigns were actually hoping that he'd stay in. There was a big feeling that his support was soft and that something, not this, no one anticipated this, but something would happen, like Hart would make a stupid statement or something like that. If any one of the other candidates were able to beat Hart in Iowa, they would be the giant killer and they'd become the front runner. And if they could even come in a close second, that would propel their campaign. Be that number two. Iowa was the place to do it. One of Bruce Babbitt's political consultants says it this way, Hart was the dragon. Who would be the St. George? Now, dragon is gone. The other candidates will have to get all the media spotlight and will have to figure it out. Nobody gets to be that anti-heart figure. It's almost sour. It's almost sour because these candidates are going to have to build their campaigns on their own. No dragon here to slay. But not for Team Biden. It excites the Biden people. Jump ball, one of his Iowa hands say. Self-aggrandizement has become the full-throated cry of this society. I've got mine, so why don't you go get yours? Joe Biden isn't going to tell anyone to put a tail on him, but he also doesn't want to be boring. He wants to move crowds. He wants to contrast his own approach with the national debate that he calls the great pantomime. Here's from a newspaper article, The Mood among 3,000 hometown supporters gathered in front of the restored Victorian train station in Wilmington, Delaware, was as buoyant as the red and white and blue balloons, so the papers wrote. Here was Joe Biden, gambling that he could pump up the crowd even higher while challenging his middle-class neighbors with the specter of a nation at risk from materialist values. E.J. Dionne, the same guy that interviewed Hart for the New York Times, writes the story on Joe Biden's campaign launch pledging that he would challenge Americans to rise above above the mere accumulation of material things. Senator Joseph Biden today announced his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president. We've been lulled by the anthem of self-interest. What's in it for me? We must rekindle the fire of idealism in our society. It is our moment of obligation and opportunity. The message that Biden wanted to send was picked up by a willing deal. Kennedy oratory revealed. His voice, said the paper, bounced off the surrounding buildings. But inside, Joe Biden would later reveal in his memoir, something felt off. Somebody had hooked me up to a lie detector in 1986 and asked if I was going to be a fully announced candidate for 1988. I would have said no. If they had asked me if I was likely Building a base to run for president in 1992, maybe 1996, I'd say absolutely. This wasn't like the early days at the Senate back then. I could see that race to victory. I knew I was going to win. Presidential race, this was different. I couldn't see it. But the men and women who were in the business of this, they were hot to go. Biden's strategy, baby boomers. Baby boomers, the article noted, made up 58% of the voting base this year. And even though Biden was slightly older than him, they were what got him elected to his first Senate seat. But the article about Biden's launch 
wasn't completely positive. Biden's mouth, it said, can be his greatest liability. During a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he came across as a hothead when he relentlessly badgered George Schultz. He might just talk himself out of the nomination, according to an Iowa activist off the record. So could George Bush, his aides thought, when he took the stage in Ames, Iowa, and they realized, oof, this is not our crowd. Yes, the Bush team succeeded in bringing their 2,000 people to this cavalcade of stars, but they couldn't have predicted the size of the total crowd. Where are the Republicans, those people that voted for Reagan-Bush in 1980 and 1984? Thousands, thousands of people converged, along with what seemed to be hundreds of reporters and cameramen. And these Republicans looked different. They looked like Bush Republicans. They were, for instance, wearing T-shirts. You're not going to see that in Connecticut at the GOP meeting. And they were doing too much clapping and whooping. They didn't appear dignified. They looked at the crowd with binoculars. They saw that what the T-shirt said was Robertson. The TV evangelist was running and wanted to make a big showing here. Lee Atwater says to Richard Bond at the time, I'm going to kill you. Actually, he said it more like, I'm going to kill you. It was Bond's job to get people there. He did. He just didn't get enough. He didn't know how many people Pat Robertson could bring. But if it's true, Atwater ran message would be just as much his fault because the appearance of thousands of evangelical voters from all over Iowa didn't make Bush change his strategy a bit. He had planned to stand by Ronald Reagan. He was with Reagan. He was damn proud of it. That's at least what he put in the text of the speech sent to reporters. Damn proud of it. The word damn was in there. A way to make Bush look tough. But he does call an audible during the speech. And when he sees the crowd, he drops that and just says, I'm proud of it. Bob Dole watching Bush at the cavalcade is chuckling as he falls flat with the audience. He saw the Bush's speech talking about Reagan attacking Democrats in the crowd too political. Bob Dole had an advantage. Ames was a university town. He had some old people from his frat that were watching the event for him, watching how it played on TV, and he'd be ready. He also had a local politician, Chuck Grassley, who would nominate him and announce him. And when he does announce Bob Dole, Grassley says... He's one of us. When he takes the stage, it's Bob Dole charm. It's not time to talk about Reagan, Bush. It's certainly not time to talk about Bob Dole and his proposed policies. Dole consents. He's lost and Bush lost. This is a campaign. This speech is about coming in second. I welcome you to the Republican Party, he said to the Robertson people who came. The stakes are high, but we need you, and we need your prayers. Sure enough, Robertson comes in first in the cavalcade of stars, and Dole comes in second. Bush, the next to the leader of the free world, came in third. But Bush still had time to take this early indicator from what Iowans were thinking in this first-in-the-nation voting. This is just a straw poll. It's not the caucuses yet. He could change up his campaign and do something about it. Campaign staff, son George W. Bush, are mad at the staffers for not winning the cavalcade, but they're not going to change strategy. 
I'm proud I'm to walk proud side to walk by side, side with by President Reagan. With the president. Keeps saying. And a Florida straw poll puts Bush first, Dole second. But there's a lot less publicity for that Florida straw poll. If blacks vote in great numbers, progressive whites win. It's the only way progressive whites win. With Gary Hart leaving the Democratic primary, there is a new national front run. And it's Jesse Jackson. Children win. When women and children win, workers win. But unfortunately for Jackson, this is 1988. There is a perception that will haunt him, that he's going to try to break, will haunt him nonetheless. The can Jesse win question. Can Jesse actually be a serious nominee? Is America ready for a black president? But on name recognition alone, he's got more percentage in the polls after Hart's leaving. In Iowa, it's a little different. Despite Jesse Jackson's noble efforts there, it's going to greatly increase his vote over 84. There's a new front runner in the state of Iowa. It's not their fault we can't sell our cars in a market like that, and I'm tired of hearing American workers blame for it. Dick Kephart was running a shoe leather campaign. It's the same way that he had always won in Missouri. Didn't have a lot of money, but he'd shake every hand, go to every door, and when he'd spent over a hundred days in Iowa working that state, because that's what Jimmy Carter did, something was off. Because he wasn't getting a response from people when he talked. He wasn't getting beyond that one, two, three percent. The way that he had been running his campaign, because Richard Gephardt was a successful congressman, he would have House members support him and show lists of congressmen that were for Dick Gephardt. If you elect me president, I'll be able to get stuff done from day one. What's the biggest problem with the Reagan administration? They can't get things done in Congress. I can. I won't have that problem. And it, it, it's a lot logical, right? It's like, here's a list of congressmen that support me. Probably going to be a Democratic Congress. This is 1988. Congress isn't going to flip to Republicans until 1994. You make me president, I know these people will get stuff passed. Hey, Pretty compelling. Great message for the press, for D.C., but it fell flat in Iowa. And New Hampshire, too. They showed up because they always show up to meet candidates. They're curious, or in some cases with Gephardt's campaign, their union had made them show up. So he hires a new consultant and decides on a new strategy. Then the Korean government slaps on nine separate taxes and tariffs. And when that government's done, a $10,000 Chrysler K car costs $48,000 in First in a speech, and he gets an outrageous response to the speech. Then he turns it into a TV ad. We make a car here called the Chrysler K-Car that costs $10,000. Compare it to the Hyundai. That costs 7000 But if you sell it in Korea, and his teeth clenched as he's saying the word Korea, with different tariffs, his teeth clench when he says tariffs. The car now cost $40,000. When I'm president, I will meet with the South Koreans. The Gephardt Amendment calls for six months of negotiation. If that doesn't work and I'm president, we have to walk away from that table. It's an ad that Dukakis can't make. Hart wouldn't have been able to make. Jesse Jackson wouldn't have thought of. It's all anybody wants to talk about. Each week, they run this ad. Gephardt moves up in the polls. This made him a little fringy, though. And he's attacking Dukakis. And by attacking Dukakis, he's reverse seeding 
that Dukakis is the front runner to be attacked. Right? He he started attacking Hart with it, and then when Hart jumped out of the race, he attacks Dukakis. And the reporters pick up on that pretty quickly. Beltway Dick Gephardt is now the outsider. As one observer had said, Gephardt was now the Howard Beale of American politics. I've been criticized for my trade policy, for saying it's time to open up markets to push down trade barriers like those Korean taxes and tariffs. Referring to the famous anchorman in the TV movie, Net- in the movie Network, who said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Just to hem in the point, the New York Times calls his trade economic populism irresponsible policy. Everybody's got a flaw. Even when Hart was leading in those Iowa polls, people said, hey, but, but if Cuomo jumps in, that's going to change. If Bill Bradley jumps in, if Sam Nunn jumps in, that's going to be... Still talk about Cuomo. Richard Celeste, the popular governor of Ohio, looks at this group of people running and says, we don't have any, you know, I, I'm governor of a Midwest state here. I could still get in. Thinks about it. No one's charting. The Democrats picked the first woman vice presidential candidate in 1984, which sets up the possibility that a woman should run for president. A lot of people, you know, Jesse Jackson is running. It's been a very exciting year trying to reframe the issues and reclaim. Let's have a woman run for president. Most hopes were with Representative Pat Schroeder of Colorado. But I think that's happening. Very well known. Good speaker. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. 
So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Appearing before the National Women's Political Caucus strikes a nerve among women's activists from both parties. I would register as a Democrat to vote for a lifelong California Republican who's interviewed, says. 400 caucus members urge the Colorado Democrat to make her candidacy official. If Pat Schroeder enters, it's going to shake up the race because there are an awful lot of women in each of these campaigns. Biden, Hart, Dukakis, Gephardt. It's an awful lot of women in these campaigns who might be lost. So not only will it boost Schroeder and she'll be running, but it'll totally shake up the rest of the race based on how much of the vote, the small amount of votes that each of these seven other candidates were getting is coming from women. One of the many complications of 1988, I'll keep talking about these various, you know, molecular political, <laughs> molecular level political dynamics that are impossible for anyone to predict. Schroeder tells the caucus, she believes women voters are more interested in her record than her sex. Says, look at President Corazon Aquino in the Philippines or Margaret Thatcher in the UK. So Schroeder decides to decide. She'll engage in the decision process. But one thing she wants to be clear, she doesn't want to run as a novelty. If America wants Tinkerbell, I am not it. Biden steps into it with Jesse Jackson, of all people. A week after the launch, Biden is asked if he would consider Jesse Jackson as a running mate. What's the correct answer here from the polished, handled candidate? I have not made any decision. I have no thought about that at this time. What does Biden say? Jackson lacks public service experience, so I would not consider him. This forces Jackson to respond. He doesn't respond directly to Biden, but he does incorporate it into his stump speech. Some leaders are politicians. Some elected politicians are not leaders. Find leadership where you can. Biden is asked again, and there's a chance to make up for it, right? Now, he said later, this question is silly, given where Jackson is in the polls. Our party has a problem with sensitivity. We're perceived as not caring about people. Bob Dole is able to use Ronald Reagan in commercials because he has video of Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, saying, Bob Dole helped me pass so much because Bob Dole is the majority leader of the Senate. In the function of government, he's a more important person than George Bush is as vice president. The one running the Senate right now, as the Senate is Republican, is Majority Leader Bob Dole. Here's his campaign ad. It says, Bob Dole led the fight to save Social Security. George Bush had nothing to do with it. So they run the ad with Reagan praising Dole. It's a little unethical because Reagan's not endorsing Dole, but they feel it's enough to kind of equalize that assumption that people are making, that because Bush is vice president, he's got the support. There'll be another episode where they're going to get Reagan. Dole's essentially going to say, if you want my support for this IMF treaty, I want a meeting in the White House that'll be photographed with the President Reagan. And uh, Howard Baker wants to vote. The chief of staff of the White House wants to vote, takes the deal. Reagan's a little uneasy about it. And so he makes sure to kind of stay far away from him. There's no like close, tight picture. He doesn't want to be seen endorsing Dole like that. It cuts both ways. If Dole can be... A little unethical with his use of Ronald Reagan. After the straw poll, Bush is going to decide they're going to have to go on the attack on Bob Dole. And, you know, they can't. How are they going to do it? 
They wanted to show supporters who Dole really was. Now, he's married to Elizabeth Dole, who is a wealthy lobbyist and has apparently a big hedge fund or some kind, trust fund of some kind. Also, he's posh. He lives in Watergate. Watergate, you know that hotel where all the D.C. royalty lives in, the women in their fur coats, actresses, opera singers, politicals, beltway elite. Mr. Dole is right there living with them. He probably wears gold slippers, and his newspaper is delivered to him on a tray with his coffee. You say he's one of you? Ha! They didn't say the thing about the slippers and the coffee, but they strongly wished to imply that. And they had a weapon. They would ask Dole to release his tax returns. Dole, after all, was a multimillionaire. That's right. Heartland Bob is loaded. They leak a story to local papers, Iowa, New Hampshire, asking about these tax returns that he refused to release. There are questions about his real estate deals, his relationships with bankers in Russell, Kansas. How do you get all this money? All Bob Dole could do was respond to reporters. Gosh, you guys really swallowed that story from George Bush. And the reporters would ask back to Dole, what's your net worth? Finally, he says, beats me. Nobody gave it to me. Why don't you release your returns, he says to the reporters. None of these are good answers. Bush kept the story going for weeks in the press. And eventually, Bush and Dole hand over 20 years of tax returns. Once they did that, the story disappeared for the most part except in the back of Dole's mind. It was a cheap shot, and it made him angry. It's your fight, too. Vote. Volunteer. Contribute. Dick Gebhardt. This new Gebhardt story has upended the race post-heart. It might be tempting if you're Mike Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts, maybe in the lead by a point or two, but nothing, you know, within the margin of error in this total jump ball race. It might be an interesting strategy to say, well, let Gephardt and his economic anti-free trade message that isn't going to play in the rest of the country, let him win Iowa, you know, try to do a straw second, and then we'll beat him in New Hampshire where I'm a neighboring governor. But Dukakis wants to chart in Iowa. John Sasso, his campaign manager, feels like Iowa wins this thing for Dukakis. A dual win. Iowa, then New Hampshire. Boom, boom. Big momentum. And reporters can't stop talking about Dukakis as inevitable, the thing is done. One state could put a lid on it. So as tempting as it might be to let Rust Belt Dick win Iowa and then take New Hampshire, he needs it. But how is he going to get it? Mike Dukakis does not scream Iowa. He does think about once one thing. Iowa caucus goers, this is an activity you have to go to. You have to care about the Democratic Party to want to show up to these things. It it involves hours of time. So Democrats who are going to go to the caucuses are going to tend to be more hardcore Democrats. You could read into that more liberal, certainly more liberal than the rest of Iowa, possibly than the rest of the United States. So in Sheldon, Iowa, on the South Dakota border, on the South Dakota border, Dukakis says, I'm a progressive liberal. No one doubts him. He's from Massachusetts. And in Spencer, Iowa, not far from there, he says, I'm a true Democrat. I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Joe Klein, a reporter in Spencer, Iowa, writes that down. Part of a piece on Dukakis's Iowa campaign. A researcher on George Bush's campaign will read Joe Klein's story and note that line. 
on a small index card, card-carrying member of ACLU. It could be useful for later. Joe Biden doesn't have to have any card unless that card said the adult in the room. That's his strategy. That's where he wants to be in this race. And he's poised to be that. These other seven dwarves are nobodies, really. Biden, voice of the baby boom, elected with their votes 16 years before, has now been serving in the Senate, an accomplished leader, a mover and shaker in Washington. But even he can't anticipate how events will conspire to give him his chance to be really the adult in the room. When Lewis Powell retires from the Supreme Court, Powell, generally a Supreme Court moderate, split down the middle on decisions, sometimes writing decisions in between two warring factions on the court. He's stepping down. Reagan now has an opening. He could play it by appointing a moderate like Powell, please everybody, get it out of the presidential race. He doesn't want to do that. The Reagan White House wants to throw a bone to the political right. It's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that today I announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert Bork. Bork. That's not a choice in the middle. That's a straight, right choice. The adult in the room gets it, though. Biden knows. They don't really mean it. The White House wants to throw Bork's name out, do penance with the right wing, who's mad that Reagan is talking to the Soviet Union too much. They'll float this crazy name, former Nixon guy, make the right happy, annoy the liberals. Ted Kennedy's freaking out already. And then go with their real choice. Somebody who can actually get on the Supreme Court. Come on now. He calls Howard Baker, Reagan's chief of staff. Good guy. He used to be a senator. Biden and him get along. They take the meeting. Biden goes to the White House and sits there in the White House and talks. You don't want this fight. I'm not sure I want this fight. They don't say anything or make any commitments to Biden. Jesus, he thinks. They really mean this. Reagan appears with Bork, makes the nomination. Now, Planned Parenthood and other groups are against it. Ted Kennedy comes out strongly against it. But Kennedy isn't the chair of the Judiciary Committee that will decide. Joe Biden is. And he's a candidate for president. It's his committee. It's majority Democrat. The Democrats on the committee are not necessarily united on this. For instance, uh, Deacon of Arizona holding on to his seat barely. He might have a tough time with this vote. Howard Heflin is a Democrat from Alabama. He might have. Reagan's very popular there. He might have trouble with this. These guys are under pressure to support Bork. Ted Kennedy's trying to make this a partisan TV war. It's not going to work. Biden knows it. But he's torn by the fact that he's also a candidate. And he's running in Iowa. And this gives him a little boost. One thing that's clear is how Iowa Democrats would like him to use his senatorial powers to block Bork. Caucus goers, as we just discussed, are partisans. It amazes me, honest to God, Biden said. I just got on an airplane today, and I'm not exaggerating. A half dozen people came to me saying, please, stop Judge Bork. And in that excitement, Biden commits to saying, there's no circumstances under which I'll vote for Judge Bork. Now he's attacked for not being objective. You're supposed to be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. You're supposed to give the guy a fear hearing and be open-minded. 
Then Biden says, I I regret making that statement. Now the liberal groups go after him. I would bet my life that if I had been disingenuous and say, I have no opinion of Bork, the press would have said, Biden plays Hamlet. Here's the St. Louis Dispatch. Bork hearing to put Biden in the spotlight. Biden won over Virginia Mills of Montezuma, Iowa two years ago with one of his shouting, psalm-quoting speeches. She's waiting for his next performance, one that will show more of Biden than his loquacious ways. I feel that in his position of chairman, he'll have the opportunity to block the confirmation of nominee Bork, said Mills. Some advisors to Biden see the hearings as an opportunity, but it's also a gauntlet that must be survived. They note that he must cancel a month of his campaign schedule in Iowa and New Hampshire. A new thing will happen in the 1988 campaign, a function of so many people running. There will be debates between candidates on in the Republican primaries and candidates in the Democratic primary. There are candidates who are on the edge of the politics, which will allow each to get attention. So Democrat Bruce Babbitt challenges Pete DuPont to a debate. Uh, actually, DuPont is the one who made the challenge. It was an Oxford-style debate with statement, rebuttal, and counterstatement. Not without attacks, uh, not without what might be called, you know, cheap shots. They, but they did call each other Bruce and Pete. And when they attacked, it was complimentary. Like Babbitt said that DuPont was bold, but cold. They debated if we could trust the Soviet Union, the proper welfare system, social security privatization or expansion. Serious, terrific debates. But nobody really watches. Well, not nobody. Dick Gephardt, Democrat and Republican Jack Kemp, decide this is a good idea what Babbitt and DuPont did. So they debate. They barb a bit. Mostly they talk at the audience instead of each other. Dick Gephardt expounds trade policy. Kemp proposed, at the earliest opportunity, we should define the dollar once again as a fixed weight of gold. They were debating real things. But the candidates weren't much helped by it. The winner, the Washington Post article said, was the format. Judiciary Chairman Joe Biden did research just as he might in law school. Voracious he was when he had a target. He looked for the right historical example to cite. And he found it in John Rutledge. Guy was a force in politics in South Carolina, the founding of the nation. In 1795, George Washington, as president, appoints him to the Supreme Court. At the same time, John Jay had been sent to Great Britain to negotiate his infamous treaty with that country. The public hates it. It's unpopular. But judges don't speak about politics, right? Wrong, Biden found out in his research. John Rutledge did, even as he was being nominated to the court. He said, As dearly as I love Washington, I can't agree with him signing this treaty. The Senate, composed of Federalists, for the treaty, didn't like Rutledge's comments. They voted against his nomination, even though Washington had nominated him. Here's Biden's point. No one questioned John Rutledge's constitutional knowledge. There's no record of that. His education, his law experience, they couldn't. No one questioned how good a judge he was. But John Rutledge was denied a seat on the Supreme Court because his views matter. His politics matter. Biden found precedent. He finds another example. Uh, Billings Learned Hand, the 1920s. First name is Learned, last name is Hand. Good judge. Everybody thought so. SCOTUS basically uses his free speech standard. Can't say he's a bad judge. But his decision saw to it 
that he was not nominated. Woodrow Wilson picked somebody else. Why? Because of his views. And there is precedent for using a variety of reasons for disqualifying judges, not just are they a good judge or not. We're not the American Bar Association. And uh, as the chain of historical research goes, a little spotty, maybe a little sporadic, but Biden could hardly contain the excitement of having that rhetorical leverage on everybody. So he's doing very well as chairman. He thinks he's got a good line on the the other people on the committee, but he's starting to feel like the Biden for president campaign is second. In between hearings, there isn't much time for talk about presidential ideas. And uh, the campaign almost becomes an annoyance, and he's doing things like last minute. The campaign was running a speech on the plane, a big speech for the Iowa State Fair, and it needs a finish, Senator. It needs some flair. Why don't we use the Kinnick stuff, an aide suggests. Yeah, it's a good idea. And the next president of the United States has to be someone the American people can believe will, will stay with his convictions. Post Hart, another candidate has entered the... Al Gore, senator from Tennessee, didn't know if he was going to run or not. He thought that maybe he'd do a light run. You know, just get his name out, get people thinking about Gore, so he could run in 1992. But heavyweight donors from the Southern Democratic Party looked at the 88 race. Liberal, liberal, liberal. Governor from Massachusetts, sales tax guy, trade-phobic populist, liberal reverend, liberal bow-tie wearer. Maybe Sam Nunn, a hawk on defense from Georgia, would jump in and start talking about something that Southern voters could get excited about. You don't want to hear about how many liberal cards people were carrying. Sam Nunn announced, he's not running. So they looked to Al Gore, son of a Tennessee senator and a Tennessee senator himself, with a nifty knack for arms-controlled issues, he would do it a pinch. Armed control is a great issue because it sounds hawkish. It has the word arms. But it's also world-helping and downright pacifist, getting rid of missiles, right? So even if you do it in a military process, it gives you defense cred, talking about arms control. And he mixed his hawkiness with a zeal for the environment. The donors ask, can you turn your sort of campaign into a campaign? If you do... The dollars will flow. When he does, he enters for real. And that means swinging at everyone. You, you voted against the minimum wage every time you had a chance to in the Congress. With, if you had your vote, it would still be $2.30 an hour. Now you say you're for it. Some Democrats want to vote against any weapon system. Hint, hint. The caucus, in effect, won't play in the South. Turn and run away may work for some, but not for my country. A double attack on liberals and also on Gephardt's anti-free trade. Protectionism is just another way of saying America can't compete. You voted against the Department of Education, now you say you're for it. You voted for tuition tax credits, now you say you're against it. Strangely enough, as though he was new in, although he was new in the race, he's instantly almost as well-funded as the best well-funded candidate, Governor Mike Dukakis, right off the bat, raising millions of dollars. You voted for Reaganomics. Now you say, well, where are you this week on Reaganomics? I'm not sure. Even on, even, even on, even on the, uh, even, even on... Each candidate that drops in or drops out of a race like 1988, where there are so many different candidates running. I'll say this again and again in the series. One of the reasons for doing this for looking at 1988, where there's multiple people running, there's some 
strange dynamics that a political physicist has to recreate to to understand. But with Gore running into the race and starting to take pot shots at everybody, both individual candidates by name and also the Democrats collectively, saying that you're all like giving up on America, talking down, being pessimistic. Weird things happen with a race with so many people in it because Al Gore is attacking Dukakis and Gephardt, the, the leaders in the race. Even on the subject that's probably the most difficult issue in this entire campaign, the subject of abortion, where everybody here has given it a lot of thought, it's a difficult issue. I don't know why you did a 180-degree reversal on that issue, but the fact is you did. Dukakis, if he starts attacking Gore, that just conjures more attacks back from him and also brings attention to a person that has less points in the polls than Dukakis. So he's not going to necessarily do it, unless it's a debate and he has to. He's not really attacking Paul Simon. My bow tie, in a sense, is my declaration of independence. I'm going to be my own person. You have to take me for what I am. But Paul Simon needs to attack him, or figures that he does. Because Paul Simon is seeing, well, wait, wait a second. I may have like a 9% in Iowa. This guy's going to take it away. I don't think any of us need to be knifing each other, he says about Gore. Bruce Babbitt. Now, he's not going to win anyway. If there are anything, if he has any issue he's for, it's earnest debate. So Bruce Babbitt takes a shot at the newcomer Gore. You're coming off as a tough kid on the block, Al. Babbitt's not a voter. And more importantly, he won't be a voter in the new plan the Democrats have, dubbed Super Tuesday, where many southern states are going to vote at once to increase the influence of the South. Uh, something else. Al Gore decides he's not really competing in Iowa. And in fact, he makes an appearance in Des Moines just to tell reporters that they're paying too much attention to Iowa because he's aiming at that Super Tuesday that's going to come later. Um, now, for for listeners, uh, for modern listeners, knowing now that Al Gore was a vice president twice and the Democratic Party's nominee later, you know, may know a different Al Gore than this. To, to hear that, like, Al Gore's the more conservative Democrat in a race sounds crazy. But this is exactly where he was in the 1988 race, at least compared to the other candidates. As Gephardt points out, uh, Gore is not a perfect Southern conservative Democrat. Okay, on the contrast, he sides with Reagan and he can claim to be hawkish. The, this is the attempt to finance fighters against the Soviet-aligned Nicaraguan government. But in other cases, Gore could be liberal. For instance, he voted against Reagan's tax cut. He's liberal for Tennessee, definitely, Gephardt points out. Gore does, even at this time, have a strong environmental record. But with no other place for conservative Democrats to go. In 1984, they had, like, Ernest Hollings was running from South Carolina. No other place to go. In this group of people, they're going with Gore. In 1911, the Iowa State Fair created a new exhibit, the Butter Cow, a huge cow shaped from a slab of delicious gold butter. It's been a tradition since then, and it was there in 1988 too, along with other butter sculptures. In addition, 200 food stands where you could get fried Snickers, fried Oreos, pickled pickled dogs, pork chops on a stick, 
bacon-wrapped hot dogs and cornmeal. Performing that year, George Strait, Alabama. But not just country artists at the Iowa State Fair. It had become so large. Gloria Estefan, Julio Iglesias. The Iowa State Fair chose the Fair Queen, and talent contests were held. But in 1988, just like any year where there's a presidential election, the Iowa Fair gets one more type of talent contest. The politicians are there. And all the candidates, now including Gore, Biden, all of them, participate in a debate. When the candidates previously met, most people, both both pundits and people watching polls, agree that Mike Dukakis was the winner. Biden wants to hit a home run here delivering what he thinks is a feisty charge. Why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family to go to college? Why is it that my wife, who's sitting out in the audience, was the first in her family ever to go to college? Was it because my ancestors were lazy? My ancestors worked in the coal mines, and they came up after 12 hours, 12 hours to play football. It's the same speech that Neil Kinnock had given. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations, to be able to get the university. And crucially, an aide, Tim Reedley, realizes Biden never says, as a, as a great labor leader in the UK, Neil Kinnock says, at this speech at the Iowa State Fair. Other times, he's making the speech in Iowa, Biden says, as Neil Kinnock says. Reporters had documented this. There's even a tape where Biden is crediting Neil Kinnock. But at the Iowa State Fair... He didn't. And he didn't realize that he didn't. And fortunately, neither of the reporters. Biden would say later, I should have just said, just like Neil Kinnock said. Five words. I should have said it. I didn't. It was naive as hell. I want to thank you for listening. This is You Break Everybody's Back, part two. Part three, Biden faces the fallout from both Kinnick and Bork. Jesse Jackson meets his own challenges. So does Mike Dukakis. Bob Dole and George Bush are going to battle it out for the future of the party. Crucially, Bush is going to slay a dragon of his own. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. If you like what you're hearing, we've got lots of other shows there at, at that website. Lots of other episodes. I do have a Patreon if you'd like to support this program. You can give us a review if you'd like to review me. really helps the show. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.